Good morning, everyone. It is a pleasure to see you all again and to fellowship. You'll be in 3 John today if you want to turn there. And words will be our focus today. Words are powerful. I like that. When God says something, he does it. Uh, he spoke the world into existence. He has great power in his words. And our words also carry a lot of weight. They make an impact. It's long been said that the pen is mightier than the sword. But words have the capacity to do what a sword cannot do. Like a sword can cut and defend and attack. But words can be used to encourage and to build up and to edify and strengthen. It's said that actions speak louder than words, but words don't need to be spoken at a loud volume to have a lasting impact. And we all use words, but how we use them is key. And that's something that's going, we're just going to focus on that theme as we go through this book. Um, I love that God's word is eternal, it's binding, and the things we say, they reveal our heart. They show what's going on inside of us. Jesus said that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So it reveals what's inside. And so when we see those words and we say, I shouldn't say them, it really should cause us to look at our hearts and say, there's something inside of me that God wants to deal with that I need to confess. And he is faithful to do that. And it's on the strength of our words that we will be justified or condemned. So the things we say, very strong. Um, And this little book that we're going to read today, it's a letter that John the Apostle wrote to Gaius, a believer. It's not exactly known when it was written. It's believed towards the latter part of John's life. And I love something, what I really love about God's Word is it's not like reading someone else's mail if you're born again, that it's actually relevant for you. This is for you today. It's to instruct us. It's to teach us, to guide us into God's truth, gives us insight into how we should live. It demonstrates care that we should have for other believers. And uh, let's pray as we open the word. Our Father in heaven, thank you for the power of your word and thank you for the truth of it, that it does not change, that you have things to say to us and through the spirit we're able to receive them. So I pray, Lord, you would fill us with the Holy Spirit. You would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. You would soften our hearts so we can understand what you're saying and apply it faithfully to our lives. We're so grateful, Lord, that you would speak to us and that you would uh, extend an audience to us, that we can come into your presence through prayer, we can intercede on the behalf of others and seek you when when we are concerned, when we have cares, and that you're able to overcome all. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you you are the great God. There is none but you. You are almighty, and we praise you and we glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We have an opportunity every day to use words to benefit others. And if you've gone to a memorial service or a funeral, it's it's often a time where people uh, speak in glowing terms of the departed. And perhaps words are said that would be most appreciated by the one who has passed. And let's not leave those compliments, those kind things unsaid. If there are kind things that we can say to people, let's say them to them while they can hear them and know that they are loved and appreciated. And it's like every day we can use our words to curse, to bless. We can use our words to to wound or to be a balm that is healing and helpful. God has spoken good words to us, hasn't he? And so we should use kind and good words towards one another in grace. So 3 John, starting in verse 1. It says, The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth, beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. John calls himself the elder, as he did in 2 John. He addresses it to Gaius. It says, one that was loved, um, I was taught in school to address a personal letter with dear so-and-so. But uh, this word where he says beloved, it means dearly beloved. So he goes beyond that. There's love in his greeting, not just a formality or something uh, polite. And because he loved him, he prayed for him. And he prayed that he would prosper in all things. God desires good for us. 
And it's a good example that we should also be praying for the good of one another. Um, There's no shortage of people that have faced difficulty, right, in following Jesus. Many privations where they went without things and suffered, and God supplied their needs. They rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for Christ. And John is saying, I've been praying for you that you would prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. This, the fact that John is writing Gaius a letter, it's a demonstration of his care that he would write down these words to encourage him. Because he didn't have to, right? He could just have prayed about him and not bothered to write a letter, but he sought to communicate with him. He wanted to reach out. And that's something common. Uh, it's a distinguishing characteristic of God's love. It's always seeking to bridge a gap. It's always seeking to draw near. It's seeking to communicate love. And that's something we see John doing with Gaius. Our love in Christ, it's not primarily emotional, but it's practical. It's demonstrated by kind words, by actions for the benefit of others. When we're not able to speak with people that we love face-to-face, it is amazing that we can pray to God on their behalf. If I can't communicate something to you, I can pray to God concerning you, and that is to your benefit. John, he knows Gaius to be born again. He knows that his soul is prospering. This word prosper, that's used twice in verse 2. In the Greek, it carries the meaning of to help on the road, to succeed in reaching, figurative to succeed in business affairs. It would be reasonable to say that good health will help us to be a better witness for the Lord, that we don't have to be hindered by, let's say, poor health. However, At the same time, poor health does not at all limit God using a person however he desires. Think of people that have uh, illnesses or injuries or even a birth, what would be called a birth defect. Um, And through them, it could be said that God's love and grace and power shone brighter than had they not suffered such things. The other day I was uh, sitting at the table and... um, there was a box of Nutrigrain, and on the back of it, there was, I believe he's Brazilian, but it, he is a professional surfer who is blind. Now, there's a lot of professional surfers in the world, and there's a lot of professional downhill skateboard riders, but the fact that he's blind is very notable, wouldn't you say? So in the same way, when someone has a difficulty, is gone through a hard thing, or is struggling in some point, the fact that they would be greatly used by God, that is, and that they would be joyful, that they would be delighting in God despite their circumstances, it's like the glory of God shines bright through that. So you don't have to ha- be blind to do a notable thing for the Lord, but God can use blind people, people who have physical issues, and that's good for us, that he can use for his glory. Now, this verse, it makes a distinction between physical health and spiritual health. He's saying physical health is good, but your soul prospering, that's really important. And while there can be a connection, they're not necessarily dependent on each other. We read of people who are legitimately born again, who are honoring God, and yet they're suffering illness, right? Sickness in their life. There's other people who have lived a life of debauchery, and they seem to be in perfectly good health. Right? We've seen it both ways. Um, To assume that sickness or an accident has happened because of a particular sin, that sounds a lot like Job's mistaken and uh, presumptuous friends. Because Job was a righteous man. And yet God allowed him to go through things. To teach both Job and to have him restored to others. And so we could have a lesson. So God's able to use sickness He's able to use painful conditions to move us to seek him in a way we never have before. And I think um, we've all experienced that. Where when you're in a bit of pain, the Bible, uh, not the Bible, I think it was C.S. Lewis that said, pain is God's microphone to talk to us. It does get our attention. When we're feeling bad, we start having a different perspective. And it's good for us to to know that even in the pain, God is accessible. He still loves you. He still is gracious toward you. 
he's still, his ear is open to you, and he will respond. And we're, we're, we're on solid footing, based upon John's here, to desire the health of believers that they would prosper even as their soul does. And, and you would agree that prosperity in God's eyes or a believer's eyes is a bit different than the world's concept of prosperity. Verses 3 and 4. For I rejoiced greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as you walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. John heard a good report about Gaius. He rejoices. He's saying there's truth in you and you're walking in the truth. People have told me about this. Actions speak truer than words. If we believe God's word is true, if God's truth abides in us, then our decisions ought to be governed by the truth of God's word. The world hates phonies who sit on their high horse telling people what the truth is and how they should behave or live, and yet they're not willing, uh, like Jesus described the Pharisees, you're not willing to lift the load with your little finger. You're not willing to take your cross upon you. You're, you're happy to preach something, but you're not living it. Gaius was someone who knew the truth, and he was walking in the truth. And so John's like, I'm over the moon. I'm so happy to hear this, that, that uh, my children would walk in the truth. Believers are testifying, so believers spoke to John, and now John's conveying that to Gaius and saying, hey, I've heard a good report. I'm so excited about that. Contrary to what some, some people think, talking about someone who is present, not present by itself, does not constitute gossip. Gossip is the spreading of rumors, um, hearsay, um, sensational stories about others, especially revealing private details or tattling to paint them in a negative light. Um, you say something because you stand to benefit, even if it's just for enjoyment at the expense of others. If you reveal the circumstances of someone's life for, the, for public discussion or judgment, that is gossip. But to testify or publicly approve of good that someone has done is not gossip. There's nothing wrong with saying something complimentary or kind about the good that someone else has done. I am always blessed when I see brothers and sisters walking in the truth. I am delighted when I hear a good report where people are walking uh, uprightly, when you guys meet with each other, when you're helping each other. You weren't told to do that, but you, the Lord has prompted you to minister to a need or to encourage or to share a ride or to share a meal with someone. That is brilliant, and I love to hear it. So keep it up. If we're children of God, if we're walking in the truth, then his truth will be evident. His love will be evident towards our brothers and sisters. Verse 5. Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers who have borne witness of your love before the church. If you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you will do well, because they went forth for his name's sake, taking nothing from the Gentiles. We therefore ought to receive such, that we may become fellow workers for the truth. Again, John calls Gaius dearly beloved. He's complimenting him now for his faithful walk. He had served both brethren and strangers. It's motive that distinguishes compliments from flattery. That's the main difference. It's why you say something nice to somebody. If you're just saying something nice to someone or complimentary to someone because the real reason why you want is to criticize or to say something negative, well, then that's flattery. That's what it is. Um, if we're seeking to gain advantage, if we're trying to impress, if we're just um, looking to influence the other person, manipulate them in some way, that is flattery. Do you struggle to receive compliments? I think a lot of people do. Really struggle with how to, how to manage that when you're given a compliment. Um, when it comes to receiving a compliment, it's not our job to discern the motive of the one complimenting us before we will just humbly receive it. It's good for us to, uh, to think of compliments as gracious word gifts that we don't deserve, 
but we're glad to receive so that we can hand them over to the Lord. A lot of times when we do receive compliments, we have this tendency to either deflect it, to tell them that they really don't know what they're talking about, creating quite an an awkward situation, or uh, we immediately resort to self-deprecation. We have to say something bad about ourselves because they've just said something nice about us. Um, Just see it as, okay, I didn't deserve, I don't deserve for anyone to say anything kind or good about me at all. And that they would say that, I'm glad to receive it for the Lord's sake. And just say thank you. We can do that. We know that nothing good dwells in our flesh. Paul said, in my flesh dwells no good thing. There's a lot of good things we could say about Paul, right? He has his faults. He's a person, just like us. A compliment is defined as a polite expression of praise, admiration, or congratulations. We might deal better with uh, the congratulations than praise. But if God should commend his beloved with well done, good and faithful servant, we do well to follow his example. Our words should be gracious and complimentary. It isn't godly to avoid complimenting someone because we're trying to keep them humble. Do you really think you can keep someone humble? No. Only God can keep someone humble, and he does a very good job at that in his time and in his ways. If we honestly appreciate someone or what they've done, if we really love them, tell them so. And you don't have to just say something. You can do something kind for them. Consider them above yourself. Fellow Christians, they had testified of the love of John, how he had opened up his house to strangers, how he had uh, given hospitality to brethren. And he said, all the church bore witness of his love. We talked about last week, it was very customary for people in the church to extend hospitality to believers. If there was a traveling preacher or a missionary, they would receive them. They would see them fed and protect them and uh, have fellowship with them. John starts with a compliment, and then he moves to an exhortation. He says that they were, he was also to send Christians on their journey in a manner worthy of God. So you could take that a few, way, a few ways. A couple of them would be to treat them the same way that he's been treated by God. So as God has been generous to him, he would be generous to them. And also that he would treat them as if Jesus was staying in, in his house. Do it worthy of God. As you've seen God do, you also do. And he wasn't just to consider their immediate needs as they were under his roof, but to think about providing for them on their journey, what they might need. And this shows us that even if we're doing something well, there's always room for improvement. We can do it better. So he's saying, Gaius, you're doing a great job. I've heard great things. You know, make sure you send people out worthy of God. You think about not only what they're, if they're fed and clothed and prepared for at your house, but beyond your house, be thinking about them, be praying for them. He said, he affirmed that these missionaries, they were not demanding anything. They weren't in it for the money. They weren't trying to be wealthy from the Gentiles. They didn't demand anything, but in supporting and supplying their needs, that Gaius was becoming a fellow worker for the truth. And that's really cool. When needs become evident to us, it may be that God would use you to meet that need. Sometimes God calls us to go. Other times he calls us to send or to provide for those who go. Both the one who supplies the practical need and the one who actually goes receive the same reward. So we see that as a a consistent theme throughout Scripture. Now in our day, it's, it's not so common, is it, to receive a stranger into your home. There may not be so much opportunity for that. And when we're approached by people we don't know, I would say especially online, it would be reasonable to really check into their story before you just wire money to them or put money in their account. Uh, and and I would say that giving someone money or or clothing or food is a bit different than having them live with you. That's taking it up a bit of a notch. I'll say a notch. 
one notch. It, it may sound good in theory, but when it comes to having a stranger in your house that you don't know with your kids at night, you've never met this person before, it makes you think twice, practically. And we can shy away from extending hospitality because we are concerned that we might be taken advantage of. Well, we can know you will be taken advantage of at times. It will happen. But if we're giving and we're serving as unto the Lord and we've been led by him to extend hospitality, it's between God and them. We're really not in the picture because we're just a minister of his grace to them. When I was growing up, uh, my parents opened our home to a homeless couple that had been living on the street. We had had a a church production. It it came to my parents' knowledge that they weren't actually going to a house that night. They were going to sleep in the the rubbish bin or in the surrounds by the church. And so my dad's like, you guys are coming home with us. Brought them home, moved my sister's mattress out of her room into our room, and they stayed with us for a year or so. You know, they just lived with us for quite a while. Sadly, the man in the end repaid my dad's generosity, my parents' generosity, by stealing my dad's, some of my dad's tools and pawning them, selling them off. But you know, it wasn't a few months later that we had another family living with us, you know, a, a mom and her little girl. And so it was done as unto the Lord. It was such a good example for me to see that even when you get burned, You should still do what's right, what God puts on your heart to do, and entrust your future to him. And I believe wholeheartedly that as hospitality was a regular thing for my parents growing up, God has and will reward them magnificently because they were obedient to him and they were fellow workers in the truth. Now, there were a lot of good stories that came from uh, having people stay with us over the years. But I think Gaius, he needed that exhortation. You know, don't, because there's some bad folks out there, people who will not repay you kindly, keep extending hospitality, keep loving people. Even if you get hurt or burned, keep serving the Lord and, and trusting him instead of isolating yourself. In the previous book, John warned not to be hospitable to deceivers, people who are deceiving. But to Gaius, John exhorts him, keep your doors open, keep serving, keep ministering. And so we find a really good balance between the two. Verse 9, I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does, prating against us with malicious words. And not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren and forbids those who wish to, putting them out of the church. Here we are introduced to Diotrephes. It seems like John had written to a letter that Diotrephes attended, likely the same one as Gaius, but Diotrephes had suppressed the letter. He had quieted it down. Unlike Gaius, Diotrephes was not hospitable. He refused to receive John and his associates, and he's described as loving to have the preeminence in the church. And the Greek word for that means fond of being first. Who isn't fond of being first? If you can get away with it, it's great being first. He was ambitious for distinction. He was happy with a cult of personality. He was glad to be central to everything that happened and had clearly forgotten Christ's example of being the servant of all, though Jesus is the only one worthy of worship or honor. John addresses this very clearly, but also gently. He doesn't accuse him of anything. He doesn't say, you know, he's arrogant, he's proud, he did this, he did that. He doesn't do that. He just says, the guy likes to be preeminent. He likes to be in the middle. It suggests that he asserted himself. He sought to control others. In verse 10, John says, if I come, it could be said, when I come. So when I come, when I visit... I will ensure that the deeds of Diotrephes will be revealed to all. He would call him out. He had been um, calling John out publicly, 
and gossiping about him, spreading slanderous rumors about him. And so it was fitting that John would address this publicly because the things said about him were public. Diotrephes used his tongue to speak malicious things, vicious things. That's the meaning in the Greek. But he wasn't content to stop there. He refused to offer hospitality. He forbade others from doing so. And if they did, he kicked them out of the church. He excommunicated them. So he was very strong in uh, asserting himself. The name of Christ was being reproached. Now, it's good for us to understand that our flesh always leans toward the behavior exhibited by diatrophies. That's our natural inclination to assert ourselves, to consider ourselves, to be central in our thinking. There's this great exhortation. Why don't you turn there in Acts 20, starting in verse 28. It's very, it's very easy for us to think about, oh yeah, that, that guy, that lady, she's a diatrophies. I've known people like that. You know, that sort of, that doesn't do us any good. The thing is, we need to decide, am I a diatrophies? Do I like to have, I may not be in the middle, but do I want to be? Do I want the attention? Do I want the control? And not just in the context of church. Acts 20, 28. Listen to what Paul said to fellow believers before his departure. He says, therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. So they're first to take heed to who? Themselves. Take heed to yourself and keep your eyes open too of the church of God. Know that God has made you an overseer. God has given you responsibility and authority and he purchased it all. You don't own it. You didn't buy it. He bought it with his own blood. He said, wolves are going to come in from outside and get this last one. Sheep from within are going to rise up and seek to draw disciples away after themselves. So they're going to turn people. They're going to wander from Christ and lead others to do the same. Paul knew this. He knew this would happen to those believers that he spoke to that day. John did the right thing in warning Gaius about Diotrephes. It's written in Romans 16, 17. Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned and avoid them. Let's be honest. Dealing with a power play can be a really awkward, difficult situation. Disheartening. We can be a bit lost with what our role is in the matter. If we truly love and we care for one another, then we will do what is spoken in Galatians 6.1, that if you see someone sinning, someone who's clamoring and ambitious to be in the middle, then we are to seek to restore them in a spirit of, mental, of meekness and gentleness, knowing that we too can be tempted. A critical word as a parting shot, that does not show any desire for restoration. Sometimes our tendency, and I think my tendency, is probably to keep quiet when there's something that I ought to say. We should be those who examine ourselves, as the scripture says. We've considered God's word. We've been obedient to do and say what the Bible says, even if it makes us uncomfortable. There's an old quote. It says, silence is golden, but sometimes it is yellow. Silence is golden but sometimes it's yellow. Sometimes it can, it's good to be silent sometimes, but other times our silence is out of uh, cowardice. And so we must be bold to be obedient to the word. But in being bold, we ought not to be harsh. We ought not to accuse, but to speak the truth in love to the end that we can be restored to our brother and our sister so they can be walking right with the Lord. 
Proverbs 10, 19, it says, In the multitude of words, sin is not lacking, but he who restrains his lips is wise. There's a time to show restraint in what you say. In every conflict, though, let us not restrain our lips to speak to God about the matter, because he's the one who will give us guidance and wisdom uh, as to what our role is. Let's speak to him freely about it. So, brothers and sisters, do you love to have the preeminence? I'm not talking about the context of church, but around the home, in your marriage, with your children, in your relationships with your friends, in the workplace. Do you put your needs first? Is that the thing that's most considered in a relationship, or do you consider the needs of others? Do you demand that others comply to your wishes, or are you happy to be last and least because you follow a Savior who did the same. May it be said that we, as children of God, give our Lord Jesus Christ the preeminence. He is central to our life. We are the ones who follow him. That we all have this, this responsibility between God, before God to love and to serve one another and to directly deal with sinful behavior rather than ignore it. God is able to keep his house in order, and I love that about him. He's not, he doesn't need us to do his dirty work for him. But he does give us a role in the process. We have a responsibility before him to be obedient. All right, back to 3 John, verse 11. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. He who does good is of God, but he who does evil has not seen God. John urges Gaius to do what is good instead of imitating evil. There's always going to be the temptation to do unto others as they have done to, uh, done to us, rather than doing unto others as we would have them do unto us. You see the distinction between the two? One is the world says if, you, if someone has, you know, done something to you bad, well, you repay them in kind with interest. You get them a little harder than they hit you because, hey, they, they did the wrong thing. You have a right to assert yourself. The world asserts if it works, it's good. That's what the world says. If I can get my way through manipulation, why not manipulate? It doesn't seem like it's hurting anyone, and I'm getting what I want out of the deal. But that's not what the Bible says. The only good way is God's way. And we see here, he says, don't imitate what's evil, but what is good. We don't always call what's evil, evil, or what's good, good. The only way something can be good is if it's of God. Then it's good. And so we must go God's way, not just the way that's worked for us in the past. Not the way that's gotten the result we wanted. And that's why God's word, it must be central to our actions. I like what the Bible knowledge commentary said on this verse. It says, evil never arises from a real spiritual perception of God, but is always a product of darkness of heart and blindness toward him. John was not questioning Diotrephes' salvation, but he was affirming that Diotrephes' conduct manifested real blindness toward God. The only way we can do good is when we're born again, through the Holy Spirit. Then we can do good because God is, is in us and living through our lives. As believers, we need to choose to imitate not what is evil, but what is good. Did you guys know that all of your all of our eyes have a natural blind spot? I remember playing with it as a kid. I'd like, you know, be outside and I'd come inside and look at the ceiling and there'd be this thing. And I'd like try to see it. But whenever my eye moved, I would be chasing it. Anyone else do that? I mean, we didn't have a TV. We just did whatever. <laughs> I mean, I would just lay on my back and imagine that I'm walking through my house and climbing over the threshold. I'm like, oh, this is so cool. I led a sheltered life. <laughs> See, our eyes have this natural blind spot because where the optic nerve comes through, it has very few retinal nerves connecting to the eye. And so there's these little light-sensitive cells that we lack in one spot. So we all have a blind spot. And if you have myopia or uh, optic drusen or something like that, you have a bigger one. So we all have a natural one, but see, God doesn't have a blind spot. 
Everything for him is clarity and light. And he's able to reveal what we don't see because we don't, we have blind spots concerning ourselves. And we need him to open our eyes so we can see the truth. We don't always see God or his word as clearly as we should. And it's he who opens our eyes to see clearly. Praise God for that. He's the one that opens the blind eye, right? He opens blind eyes. He helps us to see. Verse 12, Demetrius has a good testimony from all and from the truth itself. And we also bear witness, and you know that our testimony is true. We have Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence. But now we have Demetrius, a believer, with a good testimony from all. And it's so cool. It says, even the truth of God is witness to it. So the word itself was a witness that his life was in alignment with God's word and his will. Isn't that something you want in your life? It's like God's word is a witness that I am walking uprightly. Pretty cool. It's one thing for someone to say that about you. It's another thing if the Bible's saying that about you. John and his fellow believers, they were witnesses of the good character of Demetrius. If Diotrephes spoke malicious words against John, it's very likely he also spoke maliciously against Demetrius. So Gaius would be wise to consider the source of these comments, who they came from, and the testimony of God's word. What this reminds me of is before we're tricked to believe an attack on someone that we know is valid, we should see if there's agreement with the testimony. What's the character of the person who is giving me this? And, and not to just believe it straight up because uh, I heard someone say, um, you believe it because some, you were the first to hear it. Like the first word you hear, it seems true until the neighbor talks. And then you're like, oh, well, there's another side to this story that I didn't understand. We may assert that we are rational, logical beings guided by facts, but the truth is we are easily stirred by our emotions. Easily. Our frustration finds outlet through our mouths as well as blessing. Compliments as easily as flattery. Right? It, it can crop up in all of us. There's this great example of this, I guess it's a tendency or a characteristic of humanity in the book of Acts. We're, we're often motivated in what we say and what we believe by what we have to gain or to lose. Again, we would not, if I said, I only believe what I stand to gain or lose from, and I, you wouldn't sign off on that. You're like, oh no, I, I believe the facts. Of course you do, like everybody. But check this out. Um, there's this, another Demetrius in Ephesus, and his job was to make little shrines of Diana. So these little silver shrines, idols that he would sell. And, and he gathered all the guild together, and he's like, guys, we've made a lot of money with this rort. We're doing a really, you know, we've all made our livelihood off this. Um, but Paul is coming, and this guy, wherever he goes, people are throwing out idols. It's bad for business. We've got to shut this down. Not here. Not now. So he's slandering Paul. The, the mob gets whipped into a frenzy. There's this riot that breaks out. They grab a couple of Paul's traveling companions. And this is what it says in Acts 19.32. It says, Some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused and most of them did not know why they had come together. So there's this big mob. People are being grabbed. They're shouting this and shouting that. And they're like, why are we here? What's going on? They had no idea what they were doing. But they were all whipped into a frenzy over this. And, and then the uh, governor is like, hey, guys, settle down. This is a big deal. You guys have been shouting for hours about great as Diana of the Ephesians. We're going to be called into question for this uproar. Go home. So they had this big kerfuffle because one guy had an agenda. And he spread a lie. That could have saved his soul, but he was glad to do it because it was better for business. And there were people that believed him, people that were confused. But we need to give people the benefit of the faith before we start a commotion based off of hearsay and what we don't even know about. 
let's go to the source rather than spreading gossip ourselves. Paul wrote to the church in 1 Corinthians 11.1. He says, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. So Paul, he didn't choose to imitate Diotrephes, or John didn't. But I think it's awesome if we can say with a clear conscience to someone else, imitate me as I imitate Jesus. I am choosing to imitate Jesus with my life, and I want you to walk like him too. When we're born again, we're changed on the inside, but we keep living in this world and in a body that really is opposed to God. We live in a world that wants to conform us to its way of thinking, its way of doing things. And as a believer, we're to do more than just copy Jesus with our words, quoting him occasionally, doing some things that he did. It's not external. It's something that happens inside us when we're born again, where we're changed on the inside, but we need to cooperate with those changes and to decide, I am going to labor towards this end to glorify God in my life. I'm going to be intentional in seeking God as Jesus sought the Lord. Jesus prayed and served. I want to pray and serve and to grow in that, not just be content where I'm at. John or Demetrius, they may have been offended because of the slander. But Jesus, he made himself of no reputation. Have you guys ever had your reputation take a hit? Untrue things were said about you. You were painted in a bad light. And it was very hurtful and uh, didn't know what to do when those, when those things happen. I'm amazed that Jesus, he is the Son of God. He has all authority and all power. He is the only holy God, and he made himself of no reputation. He took the form of a servant, and then he went to the cross and died for us. And, and I can get so, you know, I can get emotional if someone is attacking my reputation. I remember years ago when I was in an apprentice, I think I was a second-year apprentice in a trade, and uh, someone that I respected was saying bad things about me. And, and I was so torn up about it. And I felt so helpless to do anything because he had seniority and he was my superior. And, uh, and I remember just crying out to God about it. And, uh, you know, I'm like, Lord, I, I, my reputation is being damaged. I want to have a good one. And he's like, I don't remember his exact words, but it's kind of like, and what is your reputation? Isn't your any good reputation you have because of me? Jesus made himself of no reputation. He didn't fight for his reputation when people were lying about him and hating him, saying he's demon-possessed. You don't see him go, I am not demon-possessed. You guys are lying about me. That's not the tone of Christ. He speaks way above this. Because he's God speaking to us. He's not competing at this human level. So his response to slander, his response is to be ours. Let's be concerned not about what other people are saying or doing, but that our contact, our conduct is in alignment with Jesus Christ, that we're imitating him. Verse 13. I had many things to write, but I do not wish to write to you with pen and ink, but I hope to see you shortly, and we shall speak face to face. Peace to you. Our friends greet you. Greet the friends by name. As with the previous letter, John expressed desire to meet face to face. This letter served a practical purpose. Writing the letter, it was useful, but uh, John preferred to discuss things face to face, in person. I found that the more I write in personal correspondence, especially over email, the more potential there is for misunderstanding. So it's good for your words to be few. And it's good to know that the advance of technology cannot reduce the effectiveness of ordinary conversation, just talking to someone. It's really important. And he says to Gaius, peace to you, our friends greet you. Greet the friends by name. Jesus called his disciples friends. He says, you're my friend if you, I call you friends because I've told you stuff. And uh, you're my friend if you do what I've asked you to do, if you follow my commands. And if there's someone who's a friend of God, well, then they should be your friend as a friend of God. 
And so we have all these ready friends in the church of God because he has called us friend and we are to call one another friend and to be friends. I like how John tells Gaius to greet the friends by name. There's a lot of us that feel we're not so good with names, right? I'm, I'm more of a face person than a name person, just personally. But with God's help, I have become much better at learning people's names. We have God's help on this. If you're not a good name person, you can be. Because we're to greet the friends by name. And the Lord will help you if you ask him. Help you to remember the name. It's nice if you can ask someone, say, what's your name again? Oh, yeah. Yes, I've done that before. I confess it openly. In a church, we have a network of ready friends that God's given us, and we can value them as, a, as those who stick closer than a brother. It's so great when we can intercede by name on behalf of someone else with God. God knows who you're talking about, even if you can't remember a name, but it is lovely to bring before him names of people that you desire him to act on their behalf. In his closing words, John says, Peace to you. And this is really the, the final point. Jesus is perfect peace for all those who believe. It's peace that is to mark our life practically and that we can share with others. We can give to others. Isaiah 26.3, it says of our Lord, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. There's no diatrophies that can rob you of the peace that Jesus Christ gives. He doesn't give as the world. He doesn't give to manipulate. He doesn't give to just get you in the door. He gives it permanently and completely, his perfect peace that passes understanding. Romans 14, 19, it says, Therefore let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which we may edify one another. You've received God's peace? Well, let's pursue the things that make for peace. So walk in a peaceful manner. If you could please turn to 2 Corinthians 13, 10 and, 10 and 11, we'll finish with these. Paul had written 1 and 2 Corinthians. They were both corrective, primarily in nature. There were some positive things, but mostly it was to deal with error in the church and some instruction. And his conclusion in 2 Corinthians is really lovely. It ties in so well with what John's saying, in peace to you, what, how you get this peace, what it means. So 2 Corinthians 13, verse 10. Therefore I write these things being absent, lest being present I should use sharpness, according to the authority which the Lord has given me for edification and not for destruction. Finally, brethren, farewell. Become complete. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Paul knew that there were some things amiss in the church, and he wrote the letter to get them thinking and moving towards repentance. Because if they chose to reject this admonition, he's like, I'm going to have to use sharp words when I arrive unless you make some changes, because there's been sin in the church. But he uses his words to edify, not to cut people down, not to make them feel awful. He was just pointing out the truth. John writes, peace to you, and this peace is available to us. I love that we, in verse 11 of 2 Corinthians 13, it says, Be of good comfort, be of one mind, and live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Are you experiencing the peace of God? It's one thing to, to know that you have it, but is it something that you are experiencing today? When we live in the peace of God, it says that the God of love and peace will be with us. And when he's with us, we have his peace. So you see the two go together. There's no peace apart from God. There's no rest. There's no contentment in without him. And so regardless of our circumstances or the difficulties that we face, we can experience his peace when we walk with him. 
Because this peace is not based upon our circumstances, but upon Christ, who is our peace. You guys have heard the term peace of mind? Right? Like you buy insurance, it gives you peace of mind. We know how that feels, where it's like, okay, that's good. If anything were to happen, it's covered. Right? That, that, that knowledge. It's, I've never seen a, uh, an insurance company say, we'll give you peaceful feelings, a feeling of peace if you buy this. No, but they do sell peace of mind. So our peace, similarly, comes from first the knowledge of the peace of God. But then there's a practical side of that where we choose to be content with what God has given because we're looking to him as our peace. God doesn't give us insurance. He gives us assurance, which is way better because insurance has a lot of fine print. You, don't, you can't always draw upon it. There's these criteria that have to be met, and they go, oh, it's expired. God's assurance never expires for those who trust him, who draw upon it by his grace. So let us be those beloved friends who, who use our words to edify, to strengthen, to believe God's word. And let the words of Philippians 4, 6, and 7 ring in your ears. It says, be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. We don't have to fight for the peace that God gives us. When we pray to God, His peace will guard us. Praise Him for that. Father in heaven, thank you that you are glorious and good, that you have spoken such kind words to us. You've given us a hope that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for us, and that we can know you, and that we can intercede on the behalf of others, and we can also come boldly into your throne room of grace to find mercy to help in time of need. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here today, Lord, that we would experience your peace that we would abide in you, having that mind of Christ, receiving your comfort, and that we would um, use words that edify. We would give an answer for the hope that's in us, Lord, but would also be those who speak to you continually about the things that are going on, giving thanksgiving to you, Lord, not helpless in in our pleas, but empowered by your Spirit, led by you as you guide us. Thank you, Lord, for, again, for your word, for a time of fellowship, and to rejoice in what you've given, and also to examine ourselves, Lord. Are we as Diotrephes or as Demetrius? Help us to be those, Lord, who have a good report and a good testimony from your word and from one another. In Jesus' name, amen.